0: This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid, conversations about how curiosity is the engine of discovery and innovation.
1: When I was an undergraduate, nuclear magnetic resonance was an idea we learned about in physics uh, as a property of, uh, of atoms. When I finished my training, nuclear magnetic resonance was already the basis of the most fundamental advances in imaging in modern medicine. That combination of basic science, technologic advance, application in the population, that accounted for the ability of our nation and nations around the world to make the progress in life and health that we have enjoyed over the past century plus.
0: That's Harvey Feinberg, one of the nation's leading public health experts and a vigorous supporter of curiosity-driven research. He argues that basic research is a major reason why life expectancy today it's some 25 years longer than it was a century ago. But we began our conversation with his role in providing scientific advice to the administration in the early days of the COVID pandemic and why, in his opinion, the government's response to the virus has failed almost from day one. This is so great to be talking with you today because you have such a varied, distinguished career and you've been such an important voice in the COVID A pandemic. In March, you were you were declared chair of the Standing Committee on Emerging Infectious Diseases and 21st Century Health Threats. What a title! You were asked to take that post by the president, as I understand. Indirectly,
1: this is a committee of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Right. And uh, the Office of the President, through the Office of Science and Technology Policy along with the Department of Health and Human Services, requested this advisory committee to be stood up.
0: Right. Were you actually listened to or were you stood up?
1: (laughs) We were appointed. (laughs) I I think most of us were already at attention with respect to COVID.
0: (laughs) Well, were your voices uh, heard by the administration? You had some very specific recommendations.
1: Yes. Early on, uh, we received a flurry of requests for scientific guidance on very particular questions ranging from aerosol spread of the virus to the virome itself, the genetic sequence of the virus, uh, to the use of masks and whether they were useful, a whole array of questions which came uh, over a period of weeks with a time horizon of days to provide the scientifically grounded responses. So we were at a very active, rapid pace for about six weeks.
0: And I think it was shortly after that you published the editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine, where you talked about being able to crush the curve in as few as, I think, 10 weeks, right? If, if the guidelines were followed.
1: You know, I I wrote that editorial uh, because of my own views and experience of uh, pandemics and what we needed to do. It was not a product of the committee, but in candor it grew out of my recognition that the series of very particular pieces of advice that we were asked and responded to were not really getting to the heart of the problem, which is what did we need to do as a nation strategically to master this pandemic. And that's why I wrote the editorial.
0: And you spoke in the editorial about this being viewed as a war, and you responded to it as if it were a war. And I really, in reading it, I thought, it didn't look like the response we had to World War II in so many important ways. Am I right?
1: Absolutely, you are right. Uh, you, You know, from the general vantage point, a pandemic is a threat to our national security in the same way that a foe sending missiles to our shores or a terrorist exploding planes into buildings are threats to our security. Nature can be the most terrifying terrorist of all. And if we took a national security footing in responding and preparing for pandemics and other natural threats. And if we mobilized with assigned leadership, what I called a unified command in the first instance, we would be in a much stronger position to succeed in defeating a foe, such as a virus, just as we were mobilized and organized in World War II. We didn't have a committee that decided about D-Day, we had Eisenhower. Mm. We needed a commander who was in charge. And in the same way, it would help in any national mobilization and response such as a pandemic as COVID demands, if we started with a unified command structure, clear responsibility and a national strategy.
0: And the support of the whole nation seems to be really important. I remember uh, hearing from my wife Arlene. She was a kid during World War II and she was at home knitting socks for our boys overseas. There was a sense of unity among so many people and we don't have that sense of unity now. Now it's a mark of some kind of political freedom not to wear a mask. I would think it'd be more of a mark of political freedom to live
1: My feeling is, if you want to make a political statement, wear a blue mask or wear a red mask. (laughs) Good. (laughs) But wear a mask.
0: One of the things that seems so interesting to me, and I know you've been very involved in promoting basic research, basic science, it seems that we wouldn't be able to deal with the COVID virus as well as we are now, if we didn't have a backlog of very deep basic research that enabled us to make advances that we wouldn't have been able to make 100 years ago.
1: This is such an important lesson from COVID. When we mobilize now to put forward literally dozens of candidates as a vaccine, that research didn't literally begin in January of 2020 when COVID was first recognized globally. That depended on a backlog of fundamental research, earlier applied work that in turn fed basic research, and preparation that enabled many investigators in this crisis to move much more rapidly, much more effectively, than would have been imaginable even five, certainly 10 years ago. So the basic research has a value not only because it produces new understanding of nature, but because it lays the groundwork for rapid response when we really need it in applying that science to solve a current crisis or problem.
0: I think many people regard basic research as not quite fluff, but something extra. When people are hungry, people are sick, uh, those are the immediate emergent concerns. And shouldn't we take care of them, some think, before we get fancy and start cogitating about the unknown? But I'm, I'm wondering, you, you've, you've done a lot of work in medical decision-making, medical ethics. When so much of value has come out of basic research that was totally unexpected— Do you think we have an uh, an ethical responsibility to do basic research for those times in the future when we'll have tools that we can't even imagine we need at the moment?
1: There's no question that basic research has payoff. But that payoff may take time to realize. Mm -hmm. And part of the decision of investing today in basic research is also an investment in our children's future and their children's future and their children's future. Part of the idea of the whole scientific revolution has been the sequential acquisition of new knowledge, building on previous work that constantly expands our capacity to understand nature, to master aspects of nature that have opportunities for us, whether it's microchips, or threats to us like a virus. And in all of these instances, our ability to live healthy, prosperous, and satisfying lives has been served and advanced by basic science. The chains of linkage of causation are obvious to anyone who just takes a look.
0: And so much of that new understanding, which has led to so many new ways of taking care of ourselves came from studying fruit flies which when when it was proposed to congress that we learn more from fruit flies they said well, what do we care about fruit flies and it, it's it, i mean you can't know when when they do the basic research what it's going to lead to
1: it's true that sometimes the focus of a scientific experiment seems remote from our lives from what we care about. And in truth, sometimes it remains remote for a long time, maybe indefinitely. It's an incidental finding of a truth of nature. But if the scientists are able to let their curiosity drive the research that they follow, if we have a combination of problem-driven and curiosity-driven science that we invest in, we give ourselves the best chance of making advances on the problems we recognize and making the fundamental discoveries that will give us solutions we can't even dream about right now. So basic science is a key to contemporary and future
0: progress. And, I, and you mentioned that it's more than knowledge. It's sometimes tools that we didn't have before. I remember seeing a huge room where DNA analysis was being done. And I believe some of that same equipment and knowledge and expertise is being used now to ferret out some of the necessary facts for for a vaccine solution. Am am, am I right about that, that you can use some of those same tools?
1: Exactly. The technologies, in fact, uh, many of the laboratories that had been conducting a variety of genomic research were able to reposition and refocus their work in the COVID crisis to facilitate a wider option for diagnostic testing. And so the capacity that we have established in science to conduct research and to make advances in a given area can also be a resource that's available to us at the time of crisis to be able to work more speedily more effectively, more broadly to face up to and solve the problem.
0: So what can we do about getting more basic research done? And you're really working on that with the Alliance of Philanthropies. What's the official title of that?
1: We have a Science Philanthropy Alliance, which is a group of philanthropies. These are private uh, foundations that are committed to the advancement of basic science. This is not a substitute for public support and government investment in science, which is much more fundamental, much more extensive, much grander in scale, but it is a marvelous augmentation of public support because private foundations can move very quickly. They can select areas that may be too risky for a standard review process in a government agency to see as worthwhile, but they can take a higher risk because they can afford to fail. And they can select areas that may at the moment be unpopular, but could be an avenue
0: to very important progress
1: in the future.
0: I love that reference you made to risk. It's always seemed to me that investing in knowledge that risk ought to be an essential element because you don't know what's going to come of that. Something really amazing can come of it. And if if you haven't haven't bet the farm on it, you haven't lost much, but you might get some great return. How do we make a case to those of us who are not so savvy through no fault of our own? We've just been doing other things with our lives that are important to, to, uh, to ourselves. How do we make that message clear that this is, while it might be risky in some cases, is extremely valuable to do?
1: I think we do two fundamental things. Number one, we have to use illustrative cases to document, demonstrate, and to make the case clear as to how and why these investments do pay off, have paid off, and will pay off in the future. And secondly, I believe we as a society need to do much more in engaging all of us, the public, especially our youth, in science, exposure to science, understanding the fascination of discovery, hands-on experience outside the classroom, learning what scientists do and why it matters. This would help all of us, if not to become scientists, because that's not the purpose, but rather to be more completely and fully informed and understanding of our world and what matters in making our world better. And if we did that, if we exposed everyone to the excitement, the discovery, the thrills of science, I think we would have a much easier time over time of gaining and reinforcing public support for the advancement of science.
0: There is this wonderful excitement for me just in learning about what scientists are trying to figure out and how they, how they make advances. It's ingenious and it's fun to hear their, their minds at work. Unfortunately, I think science is presented to us in school as a series of things that you have to remember and then say back to me, and then I'll let you out of this prison. <laughs> right and then where's the excitement yeah
1: that's why i was referring to hands-on experience you know yeah. uh, there's nothing like getting out there in the field and observing and seeing something and occasionally seeing something no one else has actually looked at in the same way the great biologist St. Georgi said discovery is not seeing something that no one else has seen It's seeing something everyone can see and thinking something different. And so I think children and science are a natural
0: match. How did you get that excitement? How did you become a scientist?
1: Well, I was uh, really not sure what I was going to do with my life. I I was a student in high school who uh, enjoyed a lot of different things. I, I loved history I loved mathematics. I loved our physics and chemistry. But interestingly, I'd never taken a biology course in high school.
0: And you became a physician.
1: It happened because when I got to college and I said to myself, you know, uh, I know I have to take some distribution requirements anyway, and the science I haven't studied is biology. Maybe it's worth I take this biology class. There was a fantastic professor, a fellow named George Wald, who uh, later uh, received the Nobel Prize for his work on the visual system. And he was a marvelous lecturer. And he introduced me to the excitement of science and especially of biology. And that's, that was, for me, a real turning point in how I spent my time as an undergrad and then uh, moving into a career
0: in medicine. It's interesting to me. You had been delighted and excited by physics, and then you saw biology. What was there about that that made the difference for you? Why didn't you become a physicist instead of a, a physician and and all the things you now do?
1: I think my wife would explain. I'm probably not smart enough to be a really great <laughs> physicist. Uh, so, so that that might have had something to do with it. Uh, you know, a career has to speak to you. It, it has to be something that uh, that is a feels like a calling. And I actually saw medicine as a pathway that could keep me with one foot in science and the other foot connected to the human condition, the human experience. So both of those uh, I I valued. and, And it was that combination for me personally that led me to the choices that I made to go into medicine.
0: Did you spend much time in clinical care? caring for one patient at a time, or did you get into metamedicine medicine pretty quickly? Uh, I continued
1: as a practicing clinician part-time hmm. for about a decade after I finished uh, my training, but I was already uh, persuaded that working on the problems of health, which concerned me one patient at a time, as satisfying as that was, and as rewarding as it was personally, was never going to alone really solve the core problems, the problems of access to care. And in the United States, the challenges of affordability and cost of care. So all of these other elements that are the cornerstones for the care of the individual, those have to be built, reinforced, improved at the same time. And I was always uh, fascinated by the combination of uh, how it all ultimately relates to the care of the individual, but that in turn is embedded in a community, a population health, and that in turn stands on a basis of social policy and practice to enable the best care to be delivered.
0: You remind me of a story we did on placebos once, and I was surprised to hear From a physician that 100 years ago or more, a little bit more than 100 years ago, pretty much the only thing that a physician had to offer a patient was a placebo, which, thank God, had a placebo effect. So some people were influenced positively by them. But without research, including basic research, there wouldn't have been the tools to care for people that we now have, sophisticated things.
1: Well, the story of the 20th century of progress, take the United States at the beginning of the century, the most feared disease, tuberculosis, Mm. life expectancy at birth under 50 years of age. You go in the course of that one century to the beginning of the 21st century, and you have more than a quarter century of improvement in life expectancy at birth. That means... Every year, there were an average of three months of life expectancy improvement. Mm. It's a stunning, unprecedented mark of progress. And why that occurred is entirely based on fundamental advances in science, applications of technology to improve the human condition, and the ability to make it possible for more people to live healthier lives. The environment in which we live mattered a lot. Rural electrification, bringing electricity and refrigeration to all parts of the United States made a big difference. But the basic science advances that made it possible to treat infections, that made it possible to manage and prevent heart attacks, that made it possible for us to take stroke patients who otherwise would all have ended up in a compromised, paralyzed position, and be able to rescue some large fraction if we can manage to get there soon enough. All of these advances depended on basic scientific knowledge. You know, when I was an undergraduate, nuclear magnetic resonance was an idea we learned about in physics uh, as a property of, uh, of atoms. When I finished my training, nuclear magnetic resonance was already the basis of the most fundamental advances in imaging in modern medicine. That's a great example of the movement from basic science to real-world application that really helped people. And it's that combination of basic science, technologic advance, application in the population that accounted for the ability of our nation and nations around the world to make the progress in life and health that we have enjoyed over the past century plus.
0: So let me take that idea and apply it to what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, the support of the nation, the coherence of the nation. We're we're talking about a vaccine we're hoping for a vaccine soon maybe even rushing too fast to get one but when a vaccine comes along the first one to come along that sounds truly promising how many people have to take it how many people have to be willing to go with it for it to do any good or to do to do a lot to do the good that we hope for
1: uh, a
0: vaccine
1: uh, against a disease like covid Uh, is going to be a boon. It's going to help uh, very, very, very much in the control of the disease. But how much and to what degree depends on the properties of that new vaccine that are currently still to be discovered? For example, does it protect 60% of the time or 80% of the time or 90% of the time? Uh, By that, I mean, if you had 1,000 people who are not vaccinated and, say, uh, 200 would get the infection, if you vaccinated that 1,000, if instead of 200, 100 get it, that's 50% effective as a Mm. vaccine. Now, how long will that protection last? Is that going to last for months or up to a year? Or could that protection be more long-lasting? Maybe it needs a booster shot in five years, but is that going to protect you For a longer time. So the profile of the vaccine in terms of its effectiveness in any one individual and the duration of effectiveness will determine how valuable it is as a tool for defeating the virus. Most of the modeling that has looked at the spread of this particular virus suggests that once you get about two-thirds of the population protected, either through vaccine or through previous infection, if that also confers immunity, you will be in a much stronger position to prevent outbreaks from spreading very widely. So overall, in answer to your question, if we had a very effective vaccine and it had long-lasting benefit, if we did have then about two-thirds of the population who were immunized, or who had had previous infection, that would be a kind of tipping point for a more complete protection of the whole community.
0: Two-thirds doesn't sound that hard to achieve, at least if we have the, the idea that we're being faced with a common enemy. But we haven't got that Haven't got that quite yet. Well, thank you for your work in this, and thank you for this really interesting conversation. I've I've enjoyed talking with you so much.
1: Well, likewise, it's an honor to be uh, in the position to talk with you, and let me just add how much I've admired for so long the work you did professionally and even more the work you are doing now to advance all of our understanding of science and why it matters
0: Oh, that's that's, that's very kind. I appreciate that very much. Thank you so much. Great talking with you, Harvey. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been Science, Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Codley Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in technology and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Harvey Feinberg's career in health policy has included being dean of the Harvard School of Public Health, provost of Harvard University, and president of the Institute of Medicine. He's currently president of the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Shumay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to the Science Clear and Vivid podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Copley Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Shirley Tillman, past president of Princeton University and one of the shapers of the Human Genome Project in the 1990s.
1: I think for me, one of the most extraordinary and exciting things that is going to happen, I think in the next year, is we are going to have a gene therapy for sickle cell anemia. I mean, sickle cell anemia has resisted all efforts to really treat it or prevent it. And it's a terrible and painful disease that disproportionately affects African-Americans in this country. And because of all the knowledge we gained with the Human Genome Project, we are this close to having an approved gene therapy that is going to cure this terrible genetic disease.
0: Shirley Tillman, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit allenalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alden. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.